This is Business Impact, a podcast series from UCD College of Business, Ireland's leading business school. I'm your host, Emmett Oliver, and each episode, I'll be joined by world-renowned faculty from across the College of Business, as well as international industry leaders who offer us insight, spark curiosity, and challenge you to rethink how you do business in a changing world. to another edition of Business Impact. We've been very busy already this, I suppose you could call it the early part of winter, and we've been talking about energy constantly. We've been also been talking about general inflationary pressures across the economy. But we also wanted to talk to some of the people that are, are at the coalface of some of these issues and, and looking at some of the more sustainable long-term solutions and some people who've made very interesting career switches into the area of energy. And my guest today is definitely in that space, and that is Mary Quaney, who is the Chief Executive Officer of Main Street Renewable Power. You're very welcome to Business Impact. Thanks, Emma. It's great to be with you today. It comes as an interesting time, and we'll spend a new few minutes uh, going into all the energy issues that I know you're right across. Your There's a lot of opinions out there. There's a lot of um, commentary, but you're actually running one of the companies who, who's right at the centre of Ireland's um, energy outlook for the next five years, and renewables is a big part of that too. But before we get to do uh, any of that, let's talk about a bit of your UCD connection. You are a BCom graduate, and you've um, got a number of different um, connections with UCD and different qualifications. So on. maybe you could just give us a quick run-through to establish that connection, first of all. Absolutely. And yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I'm very proud uh, UCD alumnus. Um, I did the, the, the international BCom with French and then went on to do the Masters of Accounting in, in Smurfit. So I spent five years in, in UCD and yeah, love, love every minute of it. Now, you've switched from that sort of a financial world. I know you, you've got big tax experience and you, you've switched over to a more broad based managerial role. Was that adjustment a big one for you to have sort of all those strong technical skills, but then move into into an area where you're managing people with their own skill sets and so on. Yeah, it's been it's been quite a journey. Um, I started uh, my career as a as a graduate with PwC, where I trained in corporate tax, and you know got fantastic experience. I was there for about six years. Worked with a lot of advising, you know, large multinationals, particularly in the pharmaceutical sector, um, investing into Ireland, and um, got a got a great range of experience. Um, I always work, wanted to work on the industry side, though, as opposed to on the, the advisory side. So my first move into industry then was, um, again, in a corporate tax role with Trinity Biotech, um, a really interesting Irish headquartered um, NASDAQ listed company in the medical diagnostics business. So I was there for a few years and again, you know, had a had a had a fantastic experience there. Around that time, this was back in, um, I joined there in 2006. So in kind of 2007, 2008, Mainstream's predecessor company, Airtricity, was um, one that was a, a great success story, a very pioneering wind developer uh, offshore and also onshore, um, was sold in, in 2008. And then Dr. Eddie O'Connor, the founder of Airtricity, went on to found Mainstream Renewable Power. So when a role came up with Mainstream, again, in the finance function, uh, a group tax role, um, I was fascinated by the potential of the industry and particularly coming from a finance side, the, the economics of, of renewable energy. I was, I was really interested to see how that cost trajectory would bear out and, and how renewable energy would become viable on, on a purely economical basis, as well as, of course, for, for climate change reasons. Um, so I joined Mainstream in 2009 and um, I've never I've never looked back. I, I took on various roles within the finance function over the years. 
Um, I was part of the senior management team for for quite um, a number of years. I was then appointed as the group chief financial officer. I was appointed to the board of directors. And then just over two years ago in 2020, I was appointed as group CEO. So it's been um, a a really interesting journey and, and plenty more to come, hopefully. Absolutely. And, and you've obviously journeyed through different sectors. You, you mentioned pharma, you mentioned uh, advisorial work in, in one of the big four and now in energy. How do you go about sort of picking up the, the technical pieces as you go through those different industries? Is there a sort of a bedding in period at the start of taking each taking up each of those roles or is it just embed yourself in the business and, and you, you take it in almost by osmosis? I suppose a bit of both in that, you know, a, a deep dive at the outset to try and absorb as much information as possible. But um, very much, you know, I've always had great opportunities to be very embedded and working very closely with it, with the with the business. And therefore, um, you know, learning from my colleagues and, you know, everywhere I've worked, I've been fortunate to work with just fantastic colleagues who've been so open and generous with regard to their their time and enabling that you know very much um learning by osmosis and and i suppose coming from you know um a, a finance background the training that i've had and going back to university days you know that ability to be open-minded to ask plenty of questions that intellectual curiosity um i really think brings you quite far now the energy business, you know, I just know from dealing with it myself over the years, there's there's a lot of engineers <laughs> floating around in that area. There's a lot of a lot of hard hats. It, it probably has a every time you see a picture from the energy, and it's usually someone pointing at a, at a pipeline or, or pointing at a wind turbine, etc. And um, there's there hasn't been traditionally as many women in senior management roles. A was that something you noticed in the first place, and do you see it be changing quite a lot in more recent years? Definitely a male-dominated industry. Um, it was very obvious when you know when when I joined, and particularly you know um, as as I started to get involved in different you know industry forums and um, attending you know various conferences, etc. It certainly is is changing, and you know here within within mainstream, you know we've been very much advocates of of that journey for quite some time, both within the company and also um, doing what we can in in an industry context. Um, but it's certainly, you know, still quite a way to go and quite a distance to go. And I think, you know, a lot of the kind of root causes for that goes back to, you know, as you say, engineering being quite a male dominated sector. So feeding back into the, the education system at primary and secondary level in order to, you know, influence then that better balance going through into the university sector and then and then beyond. And I think that the engineering sector, there are many, many colleagues that I have both within the company and within the industry whom have studied engineering and like myself having you know studied commerce and 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 accounting and then transitioned into broader managerial roles and I think um, engineering is a fantastic basis for you know for for a similar career progression. Now tell us a little bit about mainstream power there's been a lot of mergers and acquisitions and so on in the energy sector so I think the public are sometimes a bit confused about who's who and could you just go through some of the recent history obviously Eddie O'Connor is an energy entrepreneur that we've all known over many years but maybe you could trace through where mainstream comes from and just a little bit of the more recent history. So we were founded in in 2008 and I joined the company in 2009 so um I've very much lived through the 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 growth and and success of the the company that brought us to where we are today but as you say it was founded in 2009 by by Eddie also a, a very proud uh, UCD alumnus I might add the company was in private ownership not just with Eddie, but also a large number of Irish retail shareholders, you know, for for most of that journey from 2009. 
in 2020, we embarked upon a very strategic and planned change of ownership in order to to really achieve the the true potential of mainstream in terms of access to stronger balance sheet and and source of of capital and also as we were expanding very significantly across our our, ge- our geographies and and entering new markets so in um 2021 in january 2021 the acker group of norway whom have their that they've built up from the oil and gas sector one of norway's largest and most successful companies they acquired a 75 percent um shareholding within mainstream so became our our primary owner and then um, earlier this year, so in, in March um, of 2022, Mitsui of Japan invested alongside Acker to become a 25% shareholder. So with both um, Acker Horizons, our, our parent um, within the Acker group and the Mitsui group of Japan, we've got an extremely strong shareholding group now and and shareholders whom are very strategic shareholders in that they both have very strong international presence are coming from the oil and gas sector at Mitsui right across the power sector and across, you know, a number of, of industries and um, hugely supportive of the growth journey that mainstream is upon both in our existing markets and also as we enter new markets. So it's been a really exciting time for us. Um, yeah, it's a lot, a lot of change in a short period and a lot of new stakeholders to, to, to take on board. There's two, two big companies that you've mentioned there. Can you just go through, for the sake of our listeners, just the different operations the company has, the different assets, et cetera, and how the company is spread out? Absolutely. So we're an Irish headquartered company and very proud of, of our Irish our origins and, and, um, and being based here in Dublin. Our largest markets, though, are international. So our largest presence is in Latin America. In, in Chile, we have a pipeline of over six gigawatts of wind and solar projects. And we have um, we're in the process of constructing about 10 wind and solar projects at the moment. So that's about 1.3 gigawatts, so a very substantial portfolio. Then our second largest market is South Africa. And in South Africa, we've been, again, one of the most successful renewable energy developers in in the country, again, both in onshore wind and solar PV, and where we've brought very significant amounts of projects through construction and into operations, and again, have a very strong pipeline in South Africa. And then from each of those bases, we have expanded regionally. So in, in Latin America, for instance, um, we have entered the market in Colombia in, in recent years and um, very much growing our, our LATAM presence from our base in, in Chile. And then in Asia Pacific, we have our team headquartered in uh, Singapore, our, our regional management team. We are present in the renewable energy market in Vietnam, where we are developing um, just under two gigawatts of offshore wind and also um, several uh, solar projects onshore. And we have wind projects in the Philippines. Um, We've just recently um, made our first entries into the Australian market and also very early stages, but within the market in Indonesia in terms of of early stage greenfield development. And then in offshore wind, um, we have a very strong track record in, in offshore wind. The UK, as you may know, is one of the most mature or probably the most mature offshore wind market globally. And there we have been the developer on um, just over 20% of all of the UK's uh, offshore wind megawatts that you see in, in construction or in operations today. We developed, for instance, the Hornsey project, which we subsequently divested and is now owned by, by Orsted. Our predecessor company, Airtricity, developed what is 
still Ireland's only offshore wind farm, the, the Arkla Bank project um, over uh, 20 years ago at this stage. And um, we have uh, developed projects, you know, in not just in European waters, but as I said, we're we're in development in, in Vietnam. And then earlier this year, what was our former sister company, Acker Offshore Wind, has now been combined into mainstream. And they bring a very strong technical expertise in floating offshore projects. And then together we're developing projects in, in South Korea, um, in Japan, in um, early stages in Norway, Sweden, and here in our, our home seas of Ireland. Wow. <laughs> that is, that is, that's grown a lot from when I knew Eddie O'Connor when he first set the company up. That's an incredible list. Um, obviously, you've got a fairly heavy skew there into a lot of emerging markets. Was that a particular choice or, or did you do, you do you guys just spot opportunity there? I mean, you're talking about Latin America, Chile, um, Indonesia. I mean, these are sort of fast growing, or, you know, catch up economies, if you want to call them that. Was that a strategy or has the company just kind of almost just sort of floated into that area or, or was it a very deliberate choice to, to go after those particular markets? Yeah, a very deliberate strategic choice and, you know, for, for a number of reasons. So first of all, um, we focused on markets that have significant potential for renewable energy and often, you know, coming from quite a standing start. So, for instance, when we entered Chile back in um, 2008, there was no renewable energy sector there at all. Similarly, um, South Africa, which we entered around at the same time, tremendous opportunity with regard to the, the availability of land, the extremely strong you know, wind and solar resources, and the ability for renewable energy to play a very significant part in the energy system. And then from mainstream's perspective, to develop you know, multi-gigawatt portfolios of renewable energy. So, you know, we have the um track record and the ability to take quite a long-term view on a market and particularly markets that are very fossil fuel dependent and where there is the potential for renewable energy to play a very significant role. And then coupled with that hand in hand is our approach on influencing the frameworks then required to deploy renewable energy at scale. So working closely with governments, with regulators, bringing our experience and expertise from some other markets to bear in terms of, you know, sharing that knowledge and working at the corporate affairs level is an approach that we take very much hand in hand, coupled with developing pipeline and, and developing renewable energy at scale then over a period of time in, in growth markets. I was amazed actually I had to do some research the other day on renewable energy companies and wind energy companies. I was amazed to find that the, their shares had not been performing well at the moment. In fact, one Danish company, Vestas, who, who you probably know, their shares were down almost 30% a year to date. So I think there's a perception that the sector is in rude good health, that it's expanding fast. But there are challenges there, I, I, you know, that people may not be aware of who aren't in the industry, supply chain is one of them. And the second one, of course, is is just cost of materials. Um, a lot of wind turbines, you know, have steel in them in a, in a significant way. So is is the sector kind of seen as, from the outside world as very much kind of a go, go, go? And But equally, the reality is there is actually big obstacles to growth and, and big barriers. Where, where would you come down on, on, on that debate? Yeah, no, they're very, very significant challenges. And we're seeing that play across Europe at the moment. And, you know, you've referenced Vestas. The three big European manufacturers of wind turbines are, are Vestas, Siemens, Camesa and Nordex. And Vestas is certainly not alone in being in, in you know, significant financial pressures. 
And, um, you know, these pressures have been building for a number of years. So they're exacerbated, certainly, by the, the war in Ukraine and the very significant supply chain stresses and, you know, capex increases across the board, which, you know, your listeners will be very familiar with. Um, but, you know, the core of the, the, the challenges within particularly the turbine manufacturing sector predate this year's crisis and have been have been building for for some time you know i mentioned at the outset when i when i joined mainstream i was you know quite fascinated by the potential for renewable energy to become cost economically viable in its own right and that certainly has has come to pass um however you know what is not unique to europe but across all markets you know renewable energy is competing against uh, an incumbent uh, fossil fuel sector and a, and a market system design that is designed for fossil-based energy systems, whereas market design and market reform needs to enable renewable energy now to play on a level playing field. You know, the, the cost dynamic has decreased very significantly. The, the cost of onshore wind, offshore wind, solar PV, all, all of our technologies has been on a very dramatic um, downward cost curve. However, you know, now now market design and reform needs to ensure that there is an appropriate price paid for renewable energy, for the energy it's producing. And also um, in terms of, of course, you know, the, the carbon impact of the fossil fuel incumbents. And that's what you're seeing play out, particularly across the, the manufacturing sector. Yeah, I mean, I, again, I, I'm an outsider to all of this, but what, it seems everyone wants more renewables, everyone wants more wind energy onshore and offshore. But but that's almost the problem. There, there, there seems to be huge demand issues and you know, the supplies can just be can only got out at a certain pace. You know, there's only certain um, companies that are resource rich enough to, to do this kind of work. And let's just talk about Ireland, if we could briefly, just to be to be slightly narrow. And I know you take an interest in the. I know Ireland is a reasonably small part of your business, but nevertheless, I'm sure you take a close interest in it. I mean, at one level, we've been increasing the level of renewables and wind energy specifically. You know, we've ramped it up over recent years. There is no doubt. But then you see other figures like. There's only one offshore wind project. I know there are others in the in the pipeline, but the only one, as you said, Arclo Bank, you've name checked that earlier. I mean, it does seem at times we're very slow about getting wind energy out there in Ireland, even though our geographical location would seem to be ideal. Well, what do you put that down to or just that sort of lack of pacing? Is it regulatory? Is it planning? Is it a complex knot of factors? What's going on there? Because... We desperately need more of it, particularly at this time, but it just seems very slow looking at it from the outside. One is definitely the, the planning and, and permitting process. It, it's been extremely cumbersome, quite slow, and this is not unique to Ireland. You know, I, I could say the same about many, many different geographies. In Ireland, it's it's started to be addressed with the establishment of MARA, so a new a new body, but that needs very significant resources. Um, on board Canola needs, needs very significant resources and there needs to be a facilitation for the, the efficient development and permitting of renewable energy projects right across the board. And that's, you know, quite quite a significant challenge. And then the other factor I would point to is the investment required in grid infrastructure. So, you know, the, the enablement of all forms of energy, but particularly renewable energy requires you know, quite significant investment in planning in terms of grid transmission capacity. And that certainly is, again, um, a key area that is being addressed, but, you know, needs to be addressed um, quite significantly and as, as a matter of priority. And that's looking at the Irish energy system, you know, on a standalone basis, whereas the true potential of the wind resources that Ireland has offshore um, are 
greatly in excess of Ireland's energy demands. And in order to tap into that potential, it requires then the um, deployment of grid transmission infrastructure connecting into Europe and deploying that wind at scale into a much, much larger market. So the potential for Ireland really is enormous. You know, you see headlines referring to Ireland as having the potential of being the the, the Saudi Arabia of, of offshore wind. It's absolutely true. Ireland is some of the best resources that we see anywhere in the world um, off the, the West Coast. Um, but that requires, you know, significant planning and, and and investment in critical infrastructure to enable it to be deployed. Now, obviously, you know, their long term time horizons to, to develop to that level, you know, ordinary householders, I suppose, are, are more interested in the short term this particular winter. Um, wind is going to be a big part of making up the gap. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of um, fossil fuel generation plants, gas and so on. We even have Money Point coming back into being, and there are a few other stations also being brought back into online production. I mean, how do you see the winter going? I mean, as somebody who watches uh, the wind sector at least and others too, do you think we can make it true? Do you think it's it's going to be kind of a one-off winter? Do you think we're going to be in this shortage position for a few years? What's your own what's your own view of things from where you stand? Yeah, I think it's going to require, I mean, and is requiring, you know, quite careful management of the of the energy system. You know, we've already seen, um, as you will be aware, amber alerts on the system over the, the summer months. I think that the that the margins are quite are quite tight. But I think that, you know, on the balance of, of probabilities, I expect that we will get through the, the winter months without there being any very dramatic outages um but i don't believe that the that the issue is going to be resolved you know over the the coming 12 months i think this is going to be an ongoing challenge um to be managed carefully until more capacity comes online and that's you know that takes time and um and needs to be needs to be prioritized at the highest levels of government and what, what does the pipeline look like, Mary, from what you know of? We, we hear various companies going for planning and various things at different stages. I mean, it, it's very hard to get information on where the whole thing is at uh, for people outside the, the energy world. Is there much renewables coming on stream over the next two to three years that you're aware of? I mean, are, is there sort of a, a big surge of, of capacity coming in or are we a bit more stressed in that? There are a lot of projects in in development, and there's a significant amount of of um, of investment in the the development cycle. Um, but the the development of of offshore wind takes time, and you know, particularly going back to the the challenges that I mentioned earlier with regard to the time it takes for projects to get through the the permitting and and full planning cycle. I think realistically that the that the earliest the first large scale offshore wind farms can start producing energy is probably 2026 2027. Right, that's 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 a bit alarming. <laughs> that's a long way away. <laughs> yeah, there are no there there are no silver bullets um to my mind, or certainly not 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 that I can see. Now, one of the silver bullets that is out there, uh, the Germans are going big on liquefied natural gas and a lot of other European countries are doing likewise. A lot we see a lot of these floating terminals around. Obviously, they're they're not ideal because we're ramping up fossil fuels again, but a lot of governments say, look, we're stuck, we're in a corner here. I mean, do you think do you think gas storage is something that can kind of get us over a bit of a gap here in terms of European capacity? Yeah, so, you know, across Europe, there's been obviously a very significant focus on increasing the, the storage levels, particularly going into the to the winter months. And from, you know, from, from what we're seeing, you know, the storage levels have been increasing quite significantly across Europe. And I think that that's a key European energy security issue, you know, stating the stating the the, the obvious with regard to you know LNG terminals, etc. Again, 
very difficult to see how there are any quick wins in, in that regard. And I also think that governments need to be careful to make sure that they don't focus their attention on investing significant amounts of, of capital and also time in you know, fossil based solutions that, again, will take you know, quite a quite a period of time and missing the, the real cause of what the, the issue is that we're faced with today. You know, this is a ultimately uh, a gas crisis caused by uh, a dependency on the importation of, of gas. And therefore, if there was ever a drive towards really focusing on the deployment of renewable energy, you know, what's playing out in Europe today tells us that that is what required. And I think that that needs to main, be maintained at the at the highest priority levels of government. It's a tough one for them, isn't it? The politicians in the sense that, the, you know, they, they have to tell some of the big users to manage their demand. They're not too comfortable with that because we're so reliant on an FDI um, you know, business model. Equally, consumers don't want to be, you know, short either. It's kind of balancing out the different stakeholder groups here is not an easy one for either the grid company or the regulator. So, you know, everyone is kind of, a, it's just a pity, I suppose, we've all ended up in this situation. I, I, that's a, for a different podcast, but it's definitely a situation where Ukraine, the war there, has sort of revealed or uncovered some of the uh, poor planning in the energy space and, and everyone is blaming everyone else. But it's definitely not not a pleasant picture when you look at it uh, uh, from an overview point of view. No, no, certainly not. You know, and there are a number of, you know, there are clearly a number of factors at play. You know, there's there's obviously energy security, obviously the cost of, of that energy. And then, you know, we need to not lose sight of the fact that the climate crisis is is one that's extreme and that is in turn going to have an impact obviously on weather patterns on energy demand and on and on energy needs and therefore i think you know to 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 ensure that this to leave no good no no good crisis um without an adequate response um i think that the that that politicians and government regulators particularly in the pan european context really need to ensure that they focus on the, the root causes of the issue and therefore the appropriate responses. And to derive on that capacity in, in the renewable sector, is, is there anything else the government can do? You're, you're talking about permitting, you're talking about planning. I mean, is there, should they even set up a, a state organisation for renewables or, or carve it out from the Department of Energy? Because it, it, it just seems to be there's a lot of pieces there that need coordination. Would something like that help to make us, as you call it, the Saudi Arabia of the wind? world i mean it's because i'm just not sure if the, the current systems are up to scratch or best in class to be able to do that yeah no i would agree and i think i think that this needs to be really led by the the Taoiseach's office and and have you know a very focused effort on the energy system and also you know on on the deployment of of renewable energy as being a key response to that then bringing in not just the the energy ministry but also you know, other key departments such as, um, you know, finance, treasury planning, et cetera. And where, you know, where where we see uh, governments that that take that approach, you know, it's very much um, led by the, the prime minister's office or led by the, the various, the very highest levels of, of government with then key bodies feeding into that in a very focused and, and effective way. That's the type of approach, for instance, that the UK took when they were establishing the offshore wind sector um, in the UK. And there were very, very collaborative and focused groups then working across government, working with with industry, with the finance community, et cetera. So as to focus on um, removing what the barriers to investment were, the barriers to, to development and what was required to develop a sector at scale. 
if you think back to you know when the um ifse was was went from concept to to reality it was a similar type of an approach and i think it's that type of prioritization and and that level of commitment that's required in order to um, to solve the challenges that we have today. And just one, one, one question before you go. It's been a fascinating couple. We've actually run out of time because there's so much to get through. But uh, for listeners' benefit in particular, offshore wind as opposed to onshore wind, offshore wind is generally more reliable. Obviously, there's more wind out there than there is on land. Um, and it's, is, is that why that particular piece is so vital that we expand that side of things? And not that, that we should be uh, not doing things onshore, but... Um, Offshore, we've been sort of fallen behind there, and that's a pity because that is the area where you, you get the best uh, the best performance, essentially. Yeah, like offshore wind can be deployed at very much much greater levels of scale than than offshore wind. So, for instance, um, you know it would not be uncommon at all for there to be an offshore wind project in the in the the realm of say you know one point five gigawatts which is, say, in comparison to your average onshore wind project, it's probably a factor of 10, you know, at least, actually. Um, here in Ireland, many onshore wind projects would be, you know, 100 megawatts, 80 megawatts, 150 megawatts, at, at probably at the, at the highest level. So you're talking about much, much greater levels of, of scale and also stronger wind resources. You know, the, the, the wind resources offshore typically are much stronger than, than onshore, and more uh, steady, I suppose, in terms of that wind output. And then the other factor is that, you know, in, in almost all markets, the heavy demand areas for energy tend to be cities, which tend to be coastal. And therefore, the deployment of, of offshore wind can come straight in to where the heaviest levels of demand are, whereas onshore wind you know, clearly is more geographically dispersed. So there, there are a lot of reasons why um, offshore wind, you can just deploy so much more energy over a rapid pace and typically in the, the better regions for where the demand then matches the supply. Yeah, because we, we've been falling behind in the place we least need to be falling behind, if that makes sense. It, 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 it's a pity that it's been so slow. But as you say, very, very gradually we're, we're getting there. You're seeing a lot more... Um, capacity and applications happening. So while no silver bullet, at least we're moving in the direction. Thank you very much for the conversation. We've enjoyed it very much. We It's very topical with the winter coming up and uh, you've had a fascinating career and, and good luck to you at Mainstream Renewal Power over the next two years. And thanks for joining us, Mary, on Business Impact Today. Thank you so much, Emma. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Now, if you enjoyed this week's episode of the UCD Business Impact Podcast, please subscribe to episodes on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We cover a broad range of topics with insights from business leaders around the world, so there's sure to be something there for everyone. I'd like to thank our production team of Beth Gormley and Mike Liffey. They work tirelessly in the background, sourcing interviewees, editing, promoting episodes, and everything in between. I've been your host, Emmett Oliver, We hope you can join us next time on UCD Business Impact.